Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians 2. And um, we're going to be starting in verse 19 as we talk briefly about, um, about Paul and his relationship with a few co-laborers in the gospel. It's so amazing how God lines these things up. I did not know when we plotted out this series and when we scheduled to have the Lees come and visit um, and that we would, um, that, that these would both fall in the same week because we're talking this morning about what it is to pursue Christ together with other people because it turns out we kind of need each other. There's a lot of things. We're going we're gonna to get into the passage in a couple of minutes, but I want to talk for a moment about Paul first before we do that. Um, there's a lot of things that you can't do alone. I've made a list. You cannot hug alone. You cannot sing a duet alone. You cannot play football alone. There's a lot of sports you can kind of play one side of it on your own. You know, you shoot hoops or kind of hit a baseball or something, maybe throw a ball up in the air and catch it with a glove. But you can't really play any aspect of football alone that I can think of. You can't get a decent picture taken alone. You just can't. Even though we have selfies and selfie sticks and everything, you just can't. You cannot play Frisbee alone. You cannot play my favorite game, Marco Polo, alone. That would just be really, really sad. You cannot water ski alone. You cannot do my other favorite activity, which is get into an argument alone. Uh, although some would say that they know people who are so good at that that it's like, I don't know, I'm pretty sure that person could argue with a brick wall. Um, you cannot have a slumber party alone, and those are a ton of fun. And um, I was talking to Ellie about this last night, and she mentioned maybe the saddest one, because you, know, you get a real mental image of this one. You can't use a seesaw alone. And if you've ever taken a kid to a park and it happened to be a day when no other kids showed up at the park, you've probably seen that incredibly sad sight of a child sitting on a seesaw all alone. And if you care about that child at all, hopefully you got right up and you went and launched them off that seesaw because that's what you should do. God's setting you, self, uh, setting you up for a really awesome opportunity. There are so many things that we cannot do alone and many of us approach faith as something that we can do alone. And I'm not talking, yeah, you're like, oh, we're all sitting here together. We're together. Here we are. We're at church together. But we approach faith as such an incredibly individual thing that we tend to go at it alone much of the time. Paul is a very interesting guy. We've been living in the world of Paul for a while now as he's writing this letter from prison to his, uh, this church that he holds in such high regard. Paul is uh, unique because he is, in one word, devout. Paul is serious about his faith. He lives out his faith in a very real way. To be devout means to be totally committed to a belief, to be totally devoted to a belief. And that's a phrase that typically takes on negative connotations more than positive nowadays. In fact, we often won't ascribe the word devout to ourselves or even our own group. We'll often describe it, ascribe it to other people who believe things that we don't agree with, right? And it's kind of funny how that works. Like, oh, they're devout. They're very devout. It's a devout thing. And the idea is that it kind of brings with it this feeling that maybe somebody's a little too serious in their faith, right? They're a little bit too uh, exuberant in their faith, a little too on fire in this thing that they believe in and this thing that they're all about. The theologian Karl Barth says this about Paul, and I think it's so true. He says, this is how it looks when a man does not only think these thoughts, but because they are true and necessary thoughts, must live constantly in their shadow and can never get away from them in his concrete decisions. He says, Paul is somebody who can't believe things without 
doing them, without living them out. He just can't seem to. And so his whole life is epic, and it is moving because he does and lives what he believes. And believe it or not, that's very rare. It is actually very rare to live out what we believe. And you may hear that and go, how is that even possible, right? What, what you believe is what you would do. It's how you would choose to live. But this isn't actually true. Because we have these big things that we believe, that we acknowledge, that we say are more important, are so significant, are so crucial. And yet, in order to live for those things or be about those things or care about those things, we have to deny some of the most basic desires that we seem to have. We wake up every morning and we want to be comfortable and to be happy. We want self-preservation. That is typically what motivates us most days. And so then we go, but I want to be about something bigger, something more. I want to shoot higher than just that. And if we want that, Usually that's built around some kind of belief that we have. If we want that, then we have to ignore some of those more basic things and choose to live for what we believe. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he actually believes it. He lives out what he believes, really. He believes that to live is Christ and he, and he lives his life that way. He believes that the die is gain. And he talks about death and you know he believes that he actually lives that thing out in the way that he even sees death happening and affecting him in his life. Could you even imagine if all the stuff that you read about and heard about and wanted to be about that you could actually be about? Could you imagine if all the things that you wanted to do, you could actually do? The things that you believe would be better, would be a more valuable use of you or your life, or even just the fact that you feel stuck here and you should be living here and you wish you could somehow. You're one of those like the new me, right? But the new me isn't going to be like that. The new me isn't going to see things this way. 2.0, 3.0, right? I'm new and improved. I'm going to get past these old things in my life or this way that I've lived. This small view of the way things need to be. How many of us wish that we could actually do that stuff rather than just wish we could do it or wish that we could live it out? Paul throws off anything that he says is going to hinder him to what he believes. He considers his old life, he says, rubbish compared to his new one. If in any way his old life and way of being gets in the way of these things that he knows are more important and more significant. Now, this difficulty living out what we actually believe is a very real thing. And I'll give you an example of it. The easiest example I can think of is a person deciding to become a parent. They say, I want to have a kid. And so they have a child and they hold that child on day one. And you look at this child and you go, you believe, you believe this child is more significant than me. Like parents believe that in the beginning for the most part, for the most part. This child, this child's life is now more important than my life. And I'm going to devote, the, and I'm going to devote my life to them to the care of them and the provision for them and the raising of this child. I'm going to put their needs above my own needs. I'm going to reorient. I'm going to restructure everything about my life if I need to so that they can live and grow and thrive because I believe that that's better and that that's what they need. And that's what needs to happen. But then people 
usually in the first couple of years of being a parent, encounter the hardest years of their life. Why? Because the thing that you believe that you know is more important clashes with what you want every day when you wake up and you just want to have a good day and you just want to have a nice day and you want some self-preservation. And you, re- and you then have to go through this incredibly painful process for many people of kind of reorienting your whole life actually towards this thing you believe. And you usually can't do it alone. You need help. You need other people, another person who's like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in this with you. And, and, and you sit down at the end of the day and go, oh boy, can we do this again for one more day? Let's see if we can, right? And then you get to a point where usually you've had to reorient your life so much so that you feel like now your whole life revolves way too much around these little people and you've got to figure out how to be your own person again in some way. You, 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 and you don't have to be a parent to understand this. You could be somebody who graduates from high school and says, I want to go on and I want to do something with my life, something, something significant. So I'm going to go to college. I'm going to major in this thing that I think is important. I'm going to learn all about it. And I'm going to devote the next several years of my life to this thing, to pursuing it and achieving it. And you know, if anybody asks you, how's it going? What are you doing? In school, what are you doing? Studying this, their next question, it's always going to be this next question. What are you going to do after, right? How are you going to use it? What are you going to do with your life after that thing, right? So your whole life is about like this other big thing that I'm going to live for. And so you, you say, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to maybe live there. My whole, everything's going to be, that's going to be my top priority. And then comes the freshman year of college and you move in and there is this thing called freedom freedom. And you meet all these people and there's freedom and you have all this extra time and there's freedom and you have these things called parties that some people go to and there's freedom and there's so much more, it seems, at your fingertips competing now with this thing that you're here to do. And there's tension and it's difficult. And because of that, many people bomb their first year of college because they don't know how to actually live for this thing that they know is important when it competes with all of the daily desires and longings and needs that they have. It is hard to live out our beliefs, truly. And it is something that we cannot do alone. If we really want to live the things that we truly believe are significant and important and worth living for, then we usually can't do that alone. We need other people who want the same things. And we do that, right? Once we get serious about something, we say, then I need to gravitate towards people who also want this thing and get that it's important because I need that. I can't do it alone. I can't do it on my own. So many significant things that have happened through the course of history itself have happened because people have paired up and tried to do something together that one person couldn't have possibly done on their own. Lewis and Clark, who made this great overland expedition, finding this waterway to the west, this this huge thing that no one had ever taken on as a task before, to cross America, to document so much of nature and so much of, of, of routes and ways to get there, to establish relationships with Native Americans that hadn't been, and all of this different stuff. Uh, It starts with Meriwether Lewis and the president, Jefferson, sending him on this, and he had to find someone else to go with him. And so he finds Clark, and they go together. And even though they have the core of discovery, this group of men who are there working with them and supporting them, and they have Sacagawea helping them get to where they need to go, um, 
Lewis needs Clark and Clark needs Lewis because both of those guys at the end of the day are there for one reason alone, to finish this thing in a way that no one else is. The Wright brothers who invented flight, manned flight, they were too successful, uh, they had like a successful bicycle business and they decided that they would pursue flight. Now, we look at it now and go, yeah, that was a pretty good decision, you know? I would definitely have invested in that, right? Uh, if I knew those guys were doing it. But at the time that they did that, it was seen as completely insane. Because all the people up till that point who were trying to fly, they were literally strapping themselves to chairs, holding umbrellas, and jumping off of houses and cliffs. Like, that's what people had at that point. They were like, oh, this makes sense, right? They were like at the seven-year-old level of figuring out how to fly and no further. And so when you're a successful business owner and you tell your family that you're going to uh, start pursuing full-time flight and giving big portions of your money and your time to this thing, everyone thinks you're crazy. And they mock you and they make fun of you. If these two brothers hadn't done this together hadn't supported one another together, they would not have done what they ultimately ended up doing. The truth is, we need other people. Paul, so amazing Paul. We admire Paul. This guy who's done these incredible things needs other people. And in this passage, what he's talking about, what he talks about is two specifically who mean so much to him. And if you're anything like me, and you like being alone, and you like not needing to depend on people, and not needing to know that you have to have people in order to be able to do what God's called you to do or the way that God's called you to live, then this is a hard lesson to learn. It's what I had to learn a while ago, that I can't actually do this on my own, that I can't be anonymous and also be someone who wants to live for Christ. Starting in verse 19, Paul writes this to the church. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul has a very realistic view, some would say pessimistic view, of leadership at this time. He looks at all these guys preaching the gospel around him, even in prison, and he goes, yeah, most of these guys aren't preaching for the right motives. He looks at most pastors, and he tells the church in Philippi, he says, Timothy is an exception to the rule when it comes to pastors, unfortunately. Why, he says? He says, number one, because he says, I have no one like Timothy that I can send to you. This, this person that I've been partnering with in ministry for years, that we have a relationship, he says, like a father and a son. We've grown closer even than a family. And why? Why is he so amazing? What is so good about Timothy that he is genuinely concerned, he says, for your welfare? And you go, isn't that kind of assumed for like a pastor or a person who's involved in the gospel? You would think that it would be, but the truth is that for all of the people who say, I want to lead others for Jesus, who say, I want to be the one in charge, who say, I want to be the one going and doing these bold things, Paul seems to indicate that there are few of them that will actually do so because they are concerned for the welfare 
of the people that they serve, of the people that they lead. Most people are in it for themselves. Now, why do we not trust politicians? Because we know that they don't actually care more about us than themselves. I'm sorry if this is the first time you've heard this, but those people on TV that are talking, that do a great job of telling you things at just the right time, at just the right moment, that make you feel just the right way, they don't actually care about you more than they care about themselves, not most of them. And good luck trying to sift through and find the ones that do genuinely care. And Paul says to the church, why do I think Timothy is so great? Why is he my partner in ministry? Simply because he actually does care about other people more than he cares about himself. Sounds so simple, right? But it's rare. And it's difficult for people to do. Paul's trying to do it. Paul's trying to live that way. And he recognizes how isolating it is when you try to live for others more than just yourself that it can get lonely and it can be hard and it can involve some self-denial that doesn't come natural. And you'll have the whole rest of the world saying every step of the way, no, just live for yourself, man. You've done enough. You've worked hard enough. And so he has Timothy, a partner in the gospel who can agree with him that we're about their benefit and their well-being more than we're even about our own. He also brags about Timothy and says, he's going to be such a blessing to you guys because he's been such a blessing to me. And why else does he say this? He says, for these people who I'm not that impressed with, says Paul, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So to be clear, in Paul's mind, most people who seek to be proclaiming Jesus to other people are number one, in it for their own benefit, and number two, not interested primarily in proclaiming Jesus Christ in his, in his worth, in his proclamation, in him being lifted up and in him getting the glory. So not only are they not in it for their own, for the, for the for like, so on one end, it's like, I'm doing this because it makes my life better somehow. On the other end, it's I'm doing this because it makes my name better somehow. It makes my reputation better somehow. And he says, Timothy actually cares more about the interests of Jesus Christ. And this is probably why Paul is bragging so much. And the truth is, it is so much more easier to talk about Jesus than actually live in a way that Jesus calls us to live. It is so much easier to learn knowledge about Jesus than to actually live that knowledge out. It is so much easier to say you believe something than to believe it enough to live for it. And it seems like there's a really big span of time when we can believe something on some level and still not live as a result of that thing. Now, what's interesting about Timothy is for all of the strength of his faith, his faith comes from a very different place than many other people at this time in the church. Because Timothy is one of the earliest examples that we see in Scripture of a second or third generation Christian. He was raised in the faith. He wasn't like Paul or many others, most others, who have these dramatic conversion experiences like midway through their life that caused them to go, oh, I remember what it was like to not have Jesus, and I really appreciate Jesus. But Timothy is, in part, the way that he is, the fervency and the passion of his faith, because his mother and his grandmother and probably others were a part of raising him up early on as a believer in Jesus, which means that we can do that. We can actually raise up young people in such a way that they can actually live out a stronger faith than maybe even the one that we have. 
But how do we do it? Well, one thing we know for sure is that Timothy isn't such a great Christian and so commendable in Paul's eyes because of how much he knows and how good of a teacher and speaker he is, and not because of all the rules that he follows. Why does Paul say Timothy's so great? Because he cares for the interests of others, and because he cares for Christ and the name of Jesus. That's the thing. So if we want that for the next generation, then those are the things that we ought to want to see in the next generation. Those are the things that we ought to expect of and say, this is the priority above other things. He then goes on to talk about Epaphroditus, which is a great name that people don't use more often and name their kids, and I don't really get it. Um, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice of seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is someone, a pastor, who the church in Philippi sent to Paul. They sent him with money to Paul to comfort him and encourage him and to help provide for him while he was in prison. And he goes and he gets really sick and almost dies. And then he eventually recovers slowly and then Paul sends him back. And probably knowing that, that if he sends him back before Paul's situation is resolved, that maybe Epaphroditus is going to feel badly about himself. Maybe the people in Philippi are going to get the wrong impression of how devoted he was to what they called him to do. So he sends him with this great encouragement saying, you have to know that this guy did what you sent him to do. He went above and beyond, and he has tremendous faith, and I found him encouraging, and you will be encouraged to hear his report and to hear from him as well. And why? What, it, what, what do we see in him that makes him so great? He suffered. He was willing to go to where Paul was in prison. He was willing to be with Paul, even as it brought him sickness, and he most likely wanted to stay with Paul. You get a sense that Paul is sending him back. So he's willing to walk into the difficult things rather than to get away from them, which is what all the rest of us want to do all the time, right? This is also the thing that Paul feels called to do. And so Paul goes, I feel great camaraderie. I feel like a brotherhood with this person who, like me, is trying to walk into the difficult things and lean into these things for the sake of Christ, rather than to just constantly try to get away from everything that hurts in my life so that I can go back to having an easy life. That is what makes him my companion. That is why he's the kind of person who helps me do what I can't do on my own. What we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus is something that we don't see very often, which is people who are truly living what they believe and in this case, are truly living for Christ. And because they are, Paul finds great comfort in knowing them and being a part of their lives and them being a part of his life. Paul describes these men as examples. Timothy is called an example so much in Scripture. He is an example, which means, and, which means that we are to try to be examples. 
One great quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, this theologian who was in prison because he was a part of an assassination plot against Adolf Hitler in World War II. He was in prison because of this, and he was writing letters to his family and some thoughts from prison. One of the things he wrote about being an example is he said, the church will have to see that it does not underestimate the significance of the human example. The church's word gains weight and power, not through concepts, but by example. This is a theologian, okay? This is a big deal for him to admit this, okay? He says, it's not all the concepts that we know and learn. It's the example, the way that we live. And why is this encouraging? And he says this because he had to live out and make choices at a time, at a wartime, when the way that you live and, and the line that you stand on, what's on, where you stand on one side of the line or the other says everything. Why does he say this? Because, why is this encouragement to us? Because it, 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 it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how well-spoken you are. It doesn't matter how articulate you are. If you don't understand all of this, if you don't know the perfect way to explain it to another person, if you're not a charismatic person or you're great with other people or you have an awesome personality and you can rely on those things in, in trying to live for Jesus, good news, it's okay. Because what you're supposed to do first and foremost is be an example in just how you live. And you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to do that. You don't have to be the most articulate person in the room to do that. You don't have to know the answer to every objection everyone ever has. You can simply be an example. This is what the church needs, is the church needs to be an example of what it is to actually not just say we believe something, but to live that thing out that we believe. And why are churches filled with people who say they believe things and don't live them out? Partly it's because people are not banded together. And they're not actually accountable to one another. And I don't mean in the way that we're yelling at each other and condemning each other and making each other feel guilty. I'm talking about the fact that the Bible tells us things. Things about, about how good God is and how big he is. About the kind of love that we should be expressing. And when Mitch talks about, about being in Eugene and having spacious grace, having a, having a, a, a wide grace that is bigger than people think that it is, that God's grace is bigger than we think that it is, that the love of God is bigger than we think that it is. That's hard for us to believe. That's hard for us to live out and live in light of. It's not just about rules and following things and prohibitions and cutting things out of our lives. It's about the very fact that for us to live out any one thing that we talk about on any one Sunday morning takes a lot. It's hard to live out the things that we believe. And we can't do it on our own. So either you have someone in your life, at least someone, who you can partner with in living. And I'm not just talking about a spouse or a partner and somebody you're in a relationship with. I'm saying you want to live out this thing that you believe, and so do they. And because you are closely knit together, you can keep one another strong in doing that. You can encourage one another and keep one another accountable in doing that. That might be your spouse. That might be your best friend. And you might have that. And if you do, great. But the question then is, what are you doing with that relationship that you have? What are you doing with that relationship? With that vital relationship that is life-giving, that keeps you on track for the things that are hard, but you know you need to live for? Is that Christ? Is that the thing that he calls us to do? Is that the mission of God? Or is it just something else? And you might be in a position where you just are like, I don't have that. I've isolated myself. I've believed that to be a Christian means that I can just do this thing on my own. It means that I can just kind of remain anonymous and maybe be in a bigger group of people or maybe even a group of, of like 
of like 20 people and still just kind of fade back and figure this out on my own. You will have a very, very difficult time living out what you believe on your own. Paul couldn't do it. Paul's not writing about Timothy and Epaphroditus like, oh yeah, these are nice guys, by the way. He's writing about these people like they're his lifeline. Like they are the encouragement that keeps him going in this time of difficulty. And he's truly grateful for them. Whether you have people in your life who you can partner with or you see that you need them, regardless, uh, the question is not just, what do I believe? But do I actually live what I believe? Because we believe that what the world needs is it needs people who follow Christ who are more devout. One of the biggest misconceptions outside of the church is that if everyone would just water down what they believe, we'd all be better. Listen, if you guys could all just tone it down, right? The last thing the world needs is more devout Christians. Yikes. The truth is, the very thing that is ruining everything, including the name of Christ and the name of the church sometimes, is people who are not devout enough. People who so casually say they believe things that they don't believe, that they don't live out. People who are so willing to, to posture to be a certain way because it benefits them in their life in some way. People who say Jesus is great, yeah, die to yourself, but don't actually have any concept or intention of doing that thing. That is the kind of lukewarm approach to following Jesus that actually hurts his name in the world. If, if, if our church didn't grow numerically one person, but we just grew in our ability to live out the things that we already know are true, it would completely change the area around us. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your timing, Lord, the fact that this morning as we think about Youth for Christ groups starting up on campuses, as we think about Spacious Grace and Eugene and what they're doing and how at work you are there clearly, and as we, we talk about what it is to go out and live for you, we recognize, God, that we can't do it alone, Lord. We partner with each other. We encourage each other because we know we are reminded from each other, Lord, that there are things that we are meant to, to live for and be about that are difficult. I pray, Father, that for anyone here who doesn't have that relationship, for anyone here who feels alone and feels isolated, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would begin to orchestrate that relationship in their life and that you would bring them to a point of having courage to admit that they need it, Lord. To, to, to come out and begin seeking that out and taking some of the uncomfortable steps of walking into community with other people, the vulnerability involved, the courage that's involved, Lord, knowing that it's worth it, Lord. And I pray for those of us who have those relationships and yet squander them. We squander them on things that are, that are not very important, that are not very worth living for, that you would give us a clearer sense of the mission that you call us to, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, we confess that sometimes one of the hardest things for us to believe is, is the hope that we have, Lord, is to, is to know that the hope that we have in you is so big, Father, and it is so firm that regardless of what goes on around us in the world, Lord, regardless of the pain and suffering, regardless of the chaos, Lord, that you are still good and that we still can hope in you, Lord. Our prayer is that as we come together, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in groups like this, that we would be reminded again and again, brought back to the hope that we have in you, God, that our life is found in you, that everything we have is found in you. 
And that through those relationships that we would be stronger than we are alone, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week.